Uh, Second Peter, let's open up in prayer and we'll see what uh, the Lord has for us tonight. So our Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, Lord, a gathering of your people together in your word. And Lord, I don't know of anything that's been more effective for changing the world for good than that. So we pray that in this next hour or so that you would meet with us and encounter us, Lord, here tonight, right where we're at, and that you would make your word come to life for us, Lord, so that all that you intend for us to understand, we would understand tonight. So have your way, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks, um, 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 12, it says, for this reason, for this reason, and the reason being that we're to grow in our faith through those different uh, items that we covered last week, through your perseverance, your godliness, your brotherly kindness, all these things, because Jesus cleansed us from our old sins, so we have to be diligent um, to make our calling and election sure. And then he comes into the verse we're on now, verse 12, for this reason, for all of that I just said, for, that, for this reason, Peter says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it's right as long as I'm in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. Okay, so a couple things here. Number one, you see Peter referring to his body here as a tent, and you may think that that's not a very glorious term, uh, for our body, is this to refer to it as a tent? But he has very, very uh, special meaning uh, by for calling it a tent. And the idea of it is that his audience would quickly pick up on the fact that God dwelt in a tent for 40 years of wilderness wandering. This was their tabernacle tent made of carpets for the most part. And um, and the idea was God was dwelling with them, but it was temporary. And when he would want to dwell with them on a permanent basis, he would order the, he would uh, have Solomon build the temple, a permanent dwelling place for him. But the tent or the tabernacle was temporary and portable. So Peter's going with the idea here that our bodies are now the dwelling place of God. God is now not localized in one dwelling place, he's now more globalized through all of his believers now being this tent, this tabernacle. And you see that language uh, Paul brings up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse uh, 19, he says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, and that you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you are bought at a price Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now, so there we have that Peter refers to his body as a tent. The idea is this tabernacle dwelling. And Paul says that that's what all believers are. Now, we have become the dwelling place of God himself. And therefore, we're to honor God with our bodies. 
glorify God with our bodies because it's the new tabernacle. It's a new dwelling place. Peter will say elsewhere that when you get saved, you become like a stone in the temple of God. You become part of the building, part of the structure that he dwells in. Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone and all of us are built up as living stones in this new temple or tabernacle. It's giving great, great dignity to our body, much like David does in Psalm 139, where David will speak of the fact that God knit us together in our mother's wombs, that God saw our frame when it was yet unformed. So if you're looking for any pro-life verses, you can start right here. The Bible says, from conception onward, we are God's handiwork. And I don't know if I've shared this story with many of you, but in speaking of being knit together in the womb, being God's handiwork from the embryo forward, from conception forward, God is active in our lives. And this is obviously why the Christian conviction is that abortion is one of the most hideous acts uh, ever bestowed upon mankind. And one of the greatest stories of pro-life uh, happened at Billy Graham's death. Uh, I don't know if that was a year or two ago. I kind of lost track of time. I don't know how long ago it was. But when Billy Graham passed recently, you know, his, his family is all over South Florida. And I've taught three, four, or five of his grandchildren. And one of them I'm pretty close to. And that one that I'm pretty close to, he told me a couple years ago that he was at Billy Graham's 95th birthday party up in North Carolina. And at this 95th birthday party, Billy Graham told him, he said, you know, God told me that I would live to be 100. So, so my friend here has this statement from his grandfather, Billy Graham, that he's going to live to be 100. So when Billy Graham passed, I immediately thought, gosh, is he 100 years old? And when I looked, he was 99, 99 years old. And I thought, I wonder how my friend's going to handle that. That's going to, that's going to be rough on him. Because what happened? Did Billy Graham not hear from God, which is, makes you think differently of Billy Graham when he says that he did? Or does God not know how to count to 100? I mean, what, what exactly is to be understood from this scenario? Well, I was watching TV and they, the report of Billy Graham's death was up there and it had his birth date and his death date. And they were 99 years apart but they were 90, he lived to be 99 years and three months old. Which means if you count the nine months in the womb, he died at exactly 100 years old. It's almost like God used that man to make this pro-life statement. I'm gonna tell you you're gonna die at 100. When I take you at 99 years and three months, then they'll, they'll understand that you're really 100. So guess what I just did to all of you? I just aged you nine months. You're nine months older than you thought. So happy birthday to you. All right. <laughs> I'm getting booze. Okay. All right. Remember, this is God. I'm just reporting this stuff to you. All right. Okay. <clears throat> Back to the text, Second Peter. Now, what, it, what else Peter says in these verses is this. He talks about... He says in verse 14, I know that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. So he has to put off this body. Notice he doesn't say, I have to die. 
To Peter, he's just saying, I have to put off this body. Okay, I'm going to go on. Now, where does Peter get the idea that the Lord showed him that he would die? Well, this is very clearly coming from John chapter 21, when Jesus restores Peter over the campfire. And he tells Peter that when you grow old, you'll stretch out your arms and die, which means he'll be crucified. That's the type of death where you stretch out your arms and die. And, and so Peter has in his mind from that point forward, the Lord has appointed for me to have my life end by dying for him. Now, Peter is mindful of that. He's in, he's at the end of his life here in 2 Peter. This is the last we ever hear from Peter is through this letter. And he knows he's about to die. And he's, um, what he's going to do throughout this letter is really warn us in this chapter in particular about false teachings and false teachers. So I want you to see the contrast that he's gonna make in this chapter, or actually in chapter two, between the word of God and that those who twist or mangle the word of God. And you'll realize hopefully tonight how important and how serious this word of God is that there's literally destruction and doom uh, declared upon anybody that teaches this wrongly. Okay, so imagine how God must feel about this word that there's such a punishment for intentionally anyways, intentionally misteaching the word. All right, so we're moving on here to, now what else I wanna say about this is this. Peter doesn't have a, 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 an attitude or he doesn't seem to come across as worried about this death. He's just saying, hey, Jesus showed me I'm gonna put off this tent, I know it's gonna happen soon. He's not freaked out by it, he doesn't even say I'm gonna die. He just says, the tent's gone, I'm gonna continue on, but the tent will be gone. And I, I want you to think about this. He has a very healthy perspective on where he's going, correct? He knows what death's all about. He knows what, when he dies, he knows where he's going. He knows it's gonna be instantaneous. He walks around with this knowledge of what death truly is, and he has no fear of it whatsoever. So those that truly know, the more you know about death as a believer, the less death bothers you, okay? So it doesn't bother him much at all. In fact, because he was so close to Jesus, and he knows the only way to see Jesus again is to actually die. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. I give this example a lot, so a few of you will catch on pretty quick, but this always struck me, this idea of TGIF. Now, what's that mean? Thank God it's Friday, right? So I actually ran this by all five of my classes today. I said, guys, what does TGIF mean? They said, thank God it's Friday. Now I said, do you set an alarm to wake up to come to school every day? They said, yes. You set it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Yes. You set it on Friday too? Yes. So Friday in that way is no different than the other days. Do you still come to school on Friday just like you do Monday through Thursday? Yes. So if everything's the same on Friday as it was Monday through Thursday, why do you thank God that it's Friday? And they said, because the next day is Saturday. So I said, then why don't you say, thank God it's Saturday? when Saturday comes. That seems to be what you're really trying to say, but you don't. You say, thank God it's Friday, and you actually are happy on Friday, and you literally want to thank God that it is Friday. Why is that? And they really couldn't answer. So I suggested to them that it's because they love living in the anticipation of Saturday. Fridays are more fun because of the anticipation of Saturday. Even though you're not experiencing Saturday on Friday, the anticipation really makes 
Friday better. And I told them if I, if when they walked out the door, if I passed out these cruise tickets for July 1st, 2021, and they could go anywhere in the world on a seven day cruise um, in, on July 1st, 2021, then every time they thought of that cruise between now and July 1st, 2021, they'd get happier. They'd be in a better mood. They'd be excited, even though they're not on the cruise that day. It's just the anticipation of the cruise makes them super excited. So here's why I'm saying all this. Because Peter knew he was going to heaven, and I would bet anybody that shows up on this Zoom link on a Wednesday night is convinced they're going to heaven. So here's what I think. I think you should be living in the anticipation of that in such a way that the non-believing world sees your joy. They see that you really look like somebody who really believes that eternal bliss without any pain, suffering, crying, disappointment, always having your best day every day forever with total love, peace, and health forever and ever has been purchased for you by Jesus Christ on the cross. And it's historically proven. It's philosophically sure. If you look at prophecy, it's a mathematical certainty. It's going to happen. But I think the believing world looks on and goes, they don't look like they're anticipating anything so great like that happening. I think we need to think about the fact that every day on earth is the worst of the trillions of days you're gonna exist for. It only gets better. It only gets better and it only gets better. And I think we'd be great witnesses just by keeping those, that stuff in mind. That's why Peter has no issue with death. That's why Paul says, oh death, where's your sting? Oh grave, where's your victory? Christians need to be very mindful that your death has already been experienced by Jesus Christ so that you will always go on living and it'll only get better. Now, we are on verse 16. This is why we're never gonna finish this short book. Verse 16, for we did not follow, this is very important, listen, we, Peter says, we didn't follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, so he said, we told you about this power and we told you about his coming, this power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying, we didn't make this stuff up. We were actual eyewitnesses of his majesty. This is the very thing that judges and courts of law are looking for to prove cases. Who saw it? Who's the eyewitnesses? Well, we have the apostles raising their hand. They're saying, I saw it. I saw him dead. I saw him alive. That's what I'm testifying to. I saw the blind see. I saw the lame walk. I see, seen um, the dead raised. I've seen it. We're eyewitnesses to this stuff. But this doesn't say we're eyewitnesses of his miracles. It says we're eyewitnesses of his majesty, of his majesty. And here's what he's talking about. Verse 17, he says, for he received from God the Father honor and glory when, so he's got a specific event in mind, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. And here's what the voice said. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. We were with him on the holy mountain. Now, I wish he named the mountain because I believe, I believe scholars have the wrong mountain on this one, okay? Because in another place, when it talks about this event, it says we're on the high and lofty mountain, 
And the mountain that they accredit it to is not a high and lofty mountain. It's about an 1800 foot mountain. When Mount Hermon, which is over 6,000 feet, how do you like that, Darren? Over 6,000 feet high, uh, is very, very nearby and is the most likely place, I believe, for this event. And the other reason is, and this is one of those can of worms that's gonna create a thousand questions, but Mount Hermon was believed by the first century folks to be the gateway to Hades, that the demonic world will come to and, fro, fro, to and from the earth from Mount Hermon. Uh, when you read the Messianic Psalm, I think it's Psalm, um, what is it, Psalm, might be 22, but um, it talks about Jesus, it's, it's, it's Jesus talking about his suffering, and he says, I was surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, and Bashan is right around Mount Hermon. It's that, it's that uh, mountain that seems to be the gateway to Hades. And uh, so there's a lot of, I, I'm gonna go back to that can of worms in a little while in the study and, um, and then hang up on you guys and see how you feel about all that mm -hmm. stuff as you try to go to sleep tonight. All right, so. This is probably where the Mount of Transfiguration was that Peter is saying we are eyewitnesses of his majesty. P Peter's saying we didn't make this stuff up. We saw the man changed into his heavenly appearance. We saw a man on this mountaintop that looked angelic. He looked heavenly. And Moses and Elijah appeared right there with him. Moses, they would know as the representative of the Old Testament law, Elijah represents the Old Testament prophets. So they have the representation of the law and the prophets there on the mountain with Jesus. Now a cloud descends upon them, and when the cloud lifts, Moses and Elijah are gone, and it's just Jesus. And what did the voice say that Peter's recalling these decades later, these about three decades later, he says, I remember what that voice said. Here he says, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. Here's the part he didn't mention. You can see it in Mark chapter nine. God says, listen to him, listen to him. Why? Because who did they listen to, not only their whole life, but their parents' lives, grandparents' lives, their whole family tree? Moses and Elijah, so they always listen to. So how do you get them off of worshiping Moses and Elijah? You present Jesus right in the midst of those two guys, you make those guys disappear, and you have the voice say, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. This is the New Testament era, kicking in and Jesus says something fascinating there. So when I'm gonna just wet your taste buds on this and you can go buy all the books you want and follow up with it. But Jesus says, or, or the author says this, Jesus was speaking to Moses and Elijah about his, in English, the words departure. But if you look up that word in Greek, it's fascinating because it actually is the word exodus. He's speaking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. And what you'll see is Jesus exactly following the pattern in his life of the Exodus. Just real quick, as an example, um, Jesus's life becomes a new Exodus. Out of Egypt, he's called out of Egypt, just like the Israelites were called out of Egypt. And immediately the Israelites entered into the wilderness immediately after they go through the Red Sea. And what do the New Testament writers consider their journey through the Red Sea? It says that was their baptism in the sea. So what does Jesus do when he comes out of Egypt? He immediately gets baptized. 
What happens to the Israelites after coming out of the sea? They go into the wilderness. Where does Jesus go immediately after his baptism? To the wilderness to be tested by Satan for 40 days. How long were they in the wilderness? For 40 years, okay? So he's following the pattern of the Exodus. And where Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land, can't hear echoey. We have a problem with the sound? You guys having trouble hearing me? Okay, I got a whole bunch of no's and one yes. I'm not sure what to do about that. Oh, Mike already answered, okay. All right, so um, we have Jesus following this pattern of the Exodus and um, when you see these major themes, guys, when you see these major themes play out, you're gonna see it's a beautiful mosaic that the Bible writers are giving you pieces of all the time. And if you're able to, to put these together, then uh, it's, it's gonna be a wonderful thing. Guys, give me just one second to see if there's anything we can do about these audio concerns. Mike, do you know anything going on? Yeah. I got two or three saying it's not good, but I don't know. All right, we're all connected and hooked up here, guys, so I'm gonna keep on going. I hope it works out for you. Um, all right. Now, now this is important because Peter is talking about his writings, and in another place he's going to refer to Paul's writings. And he's saying, we're not making this stuff up. We're eyewitnesses of this stuff. And he'll refer to Paul's letters as actual scripture, which is for a Jewish man to call some other man's writing scripture is a huge uh, thing to say. So verse 19, he says, and so, so we have the prophetic word confirmed. He says, we have the prophetic word confirmed. How is it confirmed? It was confirmed by God's voice validating Jesus as his son and the one to listen to. So as they listen to his son, they record his life. This is now the prophetic word confirmed. These are not cleverly devised tales. These are this is the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place. Now this sounds like he's talking about John chapter one, where it says Jesus came to, to the darkness as a light and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not comprehend it. He says, well, you would do well as living in that dark place to take the word of God, which is the word that's been confirmed by the very voice of God, you do well to take it as a light that shines in a dark place. Isn't it true that a light in a dark place is the only way to see anything, correct? So that's how you should take your Bible. It's the only way to see anything, okay? Without using the Bible as your prism for understanding the world, you're staring into the darkness. Without any details that light gives you, you're getting conclusions about the world with no detail, you're in the dark place. How long should you do this? It says, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is this morning star rising in your heart? Well, we get this idea of the morning star from Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus says he is that morning star. He's the morning star. So he's the morning star that rises in our heart, Revelation twenty two sixteen. Knowing this 
First, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here's a claim. This is called internal evidence of the divine nature of scripture. We have internal evidence, we have external evidence, and we have what we call bibliographical evidence. And that'll be when we do the apologetics class. Now, this internal evidence of this inspiration is also seen in 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Apostle Paul gives evidence of this inspiration, this claim for inspiration, where he says this very famous verse, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine. Okay, doctrine are the are the are the boundaries of good understanding of the Bible. If you leave good doctrine, you've left the proper teachings of the Bible. So the God-inspired scripture to be profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we, we have a bold claim by Peter that they were moved by the Spirit of God when they wrote this stuff. We have this bold claim by Paul that God breathed out the scriptures through their pens. And so we get words like this, we get teachings like this, that the, that the Bible is the verbal, meaning the words, the verbal plenary, plenary means the fullness, so all the words in their fullness, inerrant, no errors in the Bible, infallible, it's not even capable of having errors because of the author being led by the Holy Spirit. So it's the verbal, plenary, inerrant, infallible word of God. And people will go, that is an arrogant claim. Not only are you saying it's perfect, you're saying it's not even capable of not being perfect. And what I wanna say is this, maybe we should get a second opinion on it then. And let's get our second opinion from Jesus Christ himself. Because to him, this whole talk of verbal, plenary, inerrant, infallible word of God is not good enough. He says not one jot or tittle will by no means pass from this word until it's all fulfilled. The jot is like a lowercase Hebrew letter. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. It's half the size of all the other Hebrew letters. It is the smallest letter there is. The tittle was the smallest stroke of the Hebrew pen. It's like crossing a T or dotting an I. It's the smallest mark of a Hebrew letter is the tittle. So Jesus said not the smallest letter or even the smallest stroke of the author's pen will fail to come to pass. That's a higher level than verbal, plenary, inerrant, infallible word of God. Jesus said, I inspired the strokes of their pen. Can you imagine that? Okay. So that's why Peter says this. You would do well to heed this like it was a light in a dark place. Now that sounds like an understatement, doesn't it? Now that sounds like an understatement. He said, you do well to make sure that this is your flashlight through this dark world. Okay. What, what is... Um, what does uh, Psalm 119, 105 say? It says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. 
So a lamp shines like straight down in your immediate area. It tells you where you're at and if you're on good ground or not. That's what the lamp to your feet is doing. That's your Bible. But it's also a light unto your path. So it also shows you where you're going, gives you direction. It's the lamp and the light. Now, Peter says that, that no prophecy of scripture is man-made. They're all given by the inspiration of God. And when we look at prophecy, there's over 300 of them about Jesus Christ, and there's over 400 details to those 300 prophecies. And I just wanna say this really, really quick. Scientists and mathematicians usually use the number one times 10 to the 50th power to say that's an impossible event. If anything hits the odds of one times 10 to the 50th power, it's something that'll never happen. It's an impossible event. Well, the odds of just seven, of a, I'm sorry, of just 48 of these over 300 prophecies being fulfilled in one person has been estimated to be one times 10 to the 157th power. That's over triple the odds of an impossible event happening. And that's just 48 out of over 300 prophecies. So because of that, as audacious and braggadocious as this statement sounds, I can say humbly that it's a mathematical impossibility for Jesus not to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. There's no mathematical chance that he's not. So say the numbers. So, chapter two. I'm gonna read uh, the first three verses. But there, was, there were also false prophets among the people. So he's talking about this guaranteed, um, in God-inspired word of God, okay? That every stroke of the pen is given by God. But he says, but there's false prophets too among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. So what's God's perfect judgment for misleading people with the Bible? He says, here's perfect ju judgment, swift destruction. Okay, swift destruction for those who bring in destructive heresies to the word of God. And many will follow their destructive ways. That's why it's better for them to be destroyed. I know this is very tough language, this is the word of God. And it says, listen, it's better that the false teachers destroy than him lead people down false teachings and ruin their lives because of whom the way of truth was blasphemed. So saying the way of truth, there's a way of truth. Psalm 23, I'm sorry, Psalm 139 ends with David saying, lead me in the um, way everlasting. David said, there's a way that's everlasting. There's a way that I can live now that they're living in heaven right now, there's a way of righteousness to live that matches the way of heaven. Lead me in that way everlasting. This says the false teachers blaspheme the way of truth. So as you try to walk in this way that's everlasting, there's those that tell you how to live otherwise. And it says in verse three, by covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Now this isn't their own covetousness that they're putting on you. You can't really put your covetousness on somebody. This is them appealing to the fact that they know you're a covetous sinner. Okay, this is covetousness is one of the sins. So you don't have to ask people, do you struggle with covetousness? You can walk up to any stranger and you want, and you go, you covet, man, don't you? 
And they'll be like, yeah, of course I do. Okay, it's one of the guaranteed sins we all commit. There's covetousness in us. So they appeal to that covetousness to exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. So they're living a life that's adding to their destruction and their judgment because of their false teachings, okay? So if you go to Galatians 1.8, Paul will say, if anybody, even an angel from heaven, gives you a gospel other than the gospel that I give you, tell him he's anathema, he's eternally damned, okay? Now, imagine when you gave a book report on the scarlet letter and you misunderstood it and you said something wrong and the teacher said, you're bringing upon yourself swift destruction. You'd be like, that's a little overboard. It's a scarlet letter, okay? But guess what? It's not overboard for the Bible, is it? It's not overboard. That's the book we're talking about. God is trying to reach a dark and lost world and he entrusts the story of his son into the hands of teachers. And he makes it a spiritual gift, a gift of teaching. And the book of James will say, don't desire that one. There's stricter judgment, okay? Now, that reminds me, I have an announcement for you guys at the end. So somebody just remind me about that, if you would. All right. <clears throat> now, as we get into this, um, we're talking about the doom and the destruction of these false teachers. Verse four said, for God, if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and he didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who walk according to the flesh and the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, where angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. How many of you just said, say what? Okay, what is going on here now? This gets into the, one of the most fascinating areas of study, probably in the entire Bible. So I am going to uh, introduce you to some things here and prepare myself for your questions at the end. Okay. I wanna start explaining this in Genesis chapter six, if you wanna go there, but here's what I'm gonna be talking about says, if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them to chains of darkness, who are these angels? Well, scholars think they know who these angels are. These are the Nephilim of Genesis chapter six. So I wanna look at who these guys are, what they did, where they're at now, and then I want to give you 
I want to give you a way of understanding something that you're going to be like, what did he just say? Isn't he like the false teacher that he just said is going to like go to hell and all that? I don't, I, I don't think so, quite frankly, or I wouldn't do this, but I think this is going to be a paradigm of understanding that's going to answer a lot of questions you've asked over the years and nobody answered very well. Because once you understand this, there's a lot of aha moments that'll follow down the road. So let's get into it. Let's look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4 really quick. It says, It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves from all that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. There were giants on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth and grieved in his heart. Now, he's going to flood the world from all that now, isn't he? He's going to flood the world from all that. So what do we think is going on there? Well, typically we just think that people like you and I, just human beings, are the ones that got so entirely wicked that God floods the earth. But what's with all this language, though, of these, these sons of God coming into the daughters of men, having children by them that create giants in the land, that we have their bones, by the way. We found these giant bones all over this area. And... You can Google them. And um, so, so, and what is this title, Sons of God versus Daughters of Men? Jude chapter, uh, Jude, I think it's verse six or somewhere around there, speaks of these demonic beings and the punishment that they're going through. Peter just mentioned them in 2 Peter that we just covered in chapter two. So what is going on here? Well, the idea is this, okay? All right, so here's the thing that I think you're gonna be like, what in the world are you talking about? But here it is. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, correct? The Hebrew word for God there is Elohim, Elohim. Elohim is a plural word. El is singular God. Elohim is plural gods. It's G-O-D-S. So the question is, what does it mean that in the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth? Now the typical answer is it's the Trinity, but that doesn't fit many other uses of Elohim in the Bible. For example, go with me to Psalm 82. Psalm 82, there we read, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. So think about this, God standing in a congregation of the mighty, and I'm gonna tell you now, he's not talking about mighty human beings. He's standing in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. So there it is, lowercase g, gods, God standing amongst them, and he judges them. How long will you judge unjustly, God is saying to these lowercase g, gods, and show partiality to the wicked, Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. 
They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness, all the foundations of the earth are unstable. Here's the key verses. Verse six, God says, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the most high, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Now, would it make much sense for God to say to men, you shall die like man? Every single man has died like man. So it's no special punishment to die like man if you're a man. But it is a special punishment if you're a lowercase g God. These are the principalities and powers of darkness and higher places that Paul says, you're not battling flesh and blood, you're battling those guys. Okay, these are spiritual battles that Christianity needs to wake up to, that there is a spiritual world out there and it's alive and it's active and it's against you. Now, what we're gonna do now is look at Psalm 32 and what happens to these lowercase g gods. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is so important, it's actually called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview that I wanna share with you. This Deuteronomy 32 worldview. So, verse seven of Deuteronomy 32 says this. This is Moses, this is Moses speaking. He says, remember the days of old, Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you. So Moses is saying, there's a heritage here. There's the, your, your fathers know this, your grandfathers know this, the elders know this, ask them. And what does he want to ask them about? It says, when the Most High divided their inheritance to the nations. So the Most High is dividing inheritance to the nations. When he separated the sons of Adam, that's the same exact term in Genesis 6 for the sons of, the daughters of men and the sons of God. It's talking about something here. He said he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the children of Israel. So he's setting boundaries of people according to the number of the children of, of Israel. And it says, for the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. So here's what the Deuteronomy 32 worldview says that at the Tower of Babel, you guys are familiar with the Tower of Babel, at the Tower of Babel, they're sinning and God wants them to, to, to um, separate and, and fill the earth, but they say, no, we're gonna build this, this tower and stay right here. So God confuses their languages so that they're forced to find who speaks their language and they form community and they go and have community together because they understand each other's language. Now. Genesis 10 actually lists the nations that are formed after the flood. Does anybody know how many nations Genesis 10 gives us? 70, okay? 70 nations are on the earth immediately after the flood. Babel makes them all separate and divide. Now, I want you to think of those 70 now. A great book for you to read that'll fascinate the heck out of you that's actually in the Catholic Bible is first Enoch. First Enoch is the story of Noah's flood, but it gets into these Nephilim, these fallen angels in great detail. And it even names them and tells you who their leader is and all this stuff. It's, it's what um, the Jesus's apostles and all the first century people would have been very, very familiar with this, these ideas that are written in first Enoch. Now, the idea is Enoch 
the leader of the Nephilim, when they knew God was going to destroy the earth, appealed to Enoch to actually pray to God for them and intercede, and Enoch did, but God rejected Enoch's request, and he still was going to flood the earth. So you get like detail like that in there. That's Bible people, but with greater, greater detail. Now, when Babel happens, God divides the nations, and that's in Genesis 11. And what happens in Genesis 12? God chooses Abraham to form the Israelite nation, correct? He chooses Abraham. But what about all these other nations? What about the other 69 nations? Psalm 82 is telling us that he divided those nations to the other gods, that, that he put gods in charge of them. And Psalm 82 says he's judging those gods for, for judging them so badly, for being teaching them wickedness and not judging their wickedness. So if you read Psalm 82, you'll see that these lowercase g gods that are real gods, they're idols that the people make that are not real, but the gods are real gods. Again, Paul refers to them as the principalities and powers of darkness in higher places. So, with all of that, Peter is now telling us, back in 2 Peter, that Peter's saying in 2 Peter that these are the angels that God did not spare who sinned, but he cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. And he didn't spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterwards would live ungodly. Delivered righteous lot. So all this is saying that the angels of, of Genesis 6, he didn't spare any of them. Okay, they're all reserved for judgment. But when it comes to mankind, look at Noah. As God floods the world, he saved righteous Noah and his family. Look at Sodom and Gomorrah when they're all getting destroyed. He saved righteous Lot and his family out of there. And what's the purpose of Peter saying all this? He says that, um, where is it? That God is able to spare his own out of judgment. And then in verse 12, he says, but these, like natural brute beasts, now he's saying like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand. Now, who's he calling the brute beasts? These are the false teachers. So think about this. He's calling the false teachers, these brute beasts, they speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you. So what's the big problem here? He says they're misleading you on truth. This is exactly the problem with Satan in the garden. He's misleading them. He's a false teacher. He's, he's taking what they thought they understood from God and misleading them in that. So he says... These false teachers will do that to you, leading you to destruction through false teachings while they dine with you. So you're thinking, here's table fellowship, here's breaking bread with, with a friend, a share of faith with and all this. But if you don't know your Bible, then you won't know if they're a false teacher or not. 
So this is the hypocrisy of the false teachers. And that is an, a very, very important word for us to grasp is this hypocrisy. I'm going to talk more about that in just a moment. So what else does it say? 14, having eyes full of adultery and that cannot cease from sin. Why does he say their eyes are full of adultery because they're a false teacher of yours? It doesn't mean they're looking at you lustfully or anything like that. They have eyes of adultery because the idea is you as a believer, you're wed to Jesus, aren't you? And when adultery does to a married person is bring them away from their true love, from the one they're wed to. Well, the false teacher is bringing you away from the one you're wed to, Jesus Christ. So they have eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. Enticing unstable souls. What I want to say about that is this. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews quickly gets frustrated with his audience as he wants to teach about Melchizedek because he says you're not really spiritually ready to know about Melchizedek because you're still an infant in your faith and you need milk. It's like I got to feed you milk because you're stuck on basic principles of the faith when you should have the faith to move past those basic principles into deeper teachings in the word of God, which he calls the meat of the word that requires you to grow teeth, to chew it up, to be able to digest it and all these things. They don't go down as easy as milk, do they? Okay, I probably said a couple things to you tonight that you go, you gotta swallow down hard on some of these things. And I haven't even taught about hell at all. Wait till I teach about hell, okay? Now, they have a heart trained in covetous practices. I want you to remember this. Paul said, I wouldn't even have known I was a coveter except for the commandment that said, thou shalt not covet. And then I went, wow, so when I, when I want that thing, I'm actually sinning because it's not something I need, it's just something I want, I covet it, somebody else has it, I want and I'm coveting. Now think how many times covetous is coming up here. It says, because here's where you become vulnerable, because everybody knows that everybody's a coveter. So how do they appeal to you? They appeal to you like this. Satan will say to Adam and Eve, you'll be like God. Now if they weren't a coveter, they would have said, I don't want to be like God, he's great at what he does and I don't want to be that, I want to be me, I want to receive his love. I don't want to be the one responsible to give all that love and to do all the things he does. I just want to be the one getting blessed all the time. That's what they probably should have said. But he appealed to the covetousness of them and said, you, can, you shall be like God. This is how these things happen. This is how you get brought into cults. They're gonna appeal to you as a coveter and they're gonna tell you what you'll get out of it. Covetous practices and their accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Who was Balaam, the son of Beor? He was that prophet that was hired by King Balak as he saw the Israelites traveling through the wilderness. He saw them coming towards him and go, they defeat every army they come across. Now they're coming to me. I'm gonna lose to them. So I'm gonna hire the prophet Balaam to come up in this mountain, overlook all the Israelites and put a curse on them. And Balaam at first did right, says no. And then he says, I can only say what God will tell me to say. And that's all you get out of the book of Numbers is that he seems to have the right heart, but every time he goes to curse them, it comes out a blessing. He says, see, I told you I can't do anything God doesn't let me do. He ends up blessing them. And that's all we get in the book of Numbers. But the New Testament writers know more about that story than we're given in Numbers. Because they're able to say this, they paid Balaam to do it, and he loved the wages of this unrighteousness, and this is why he's historically an accursed person now. 
And it says, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. So remember when he was going to actually do this, his donkey that he was riding on would see the angel of the Lord in front of him and three times tried to avoid the angel of the Lord. But Balaam couldn't see the angel of the Lord, so he would beat his donkey, not knowing why he wouldn't move forward. And then finally, the third time, the donkey turns around and says, have I ever been a bad donkey? Why exactly are you striking me? Now, it'd be a little bit freaky, but it, that's one of the strongest stories that make us go, I don't wanna admit that I believe that that happened. I don't wanna go public and say, yes, I believe a donkey spoke to a man one day. But guess what? Peter's doing it now, isn't he? Peter's trying to make a point by saying, this donkey rebuked this prophet. And that validates the fact that the people closest to Jesus saw this as historical. And so it would take a lot for us to say that they were wrong. So we had a talking donkey here. It says, these are wells without water. Here's how he's talking about these false prophets. They're clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. That is not a pleasant thing to say about anybody. Now, all right. Verse 18, as we finish up. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, remember these are false teachers, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, that's the covetousness they're appealing to, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. So now he's saying, listen, here's who's vulnerable. When you actually come into the faith, escaping from error, and you haven't learned the word really good yet, you're very vulnerable. Because you think, wow, I escaped that, so now I'm safe. But how are you able to judge what you're hearing is true or not? You have to learn your word. So it says, while they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they escape the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having been washed to her wallowing in the mire. Now, what happened there? He says this, this, this is one of those bitter pills, so get ready to chew on it a little bit. He's saying this. He's saying, if you've escaped falseness and falsehood, and you've come into the Christian faith, what if you walked into a Mormon church or a Jehovah's Witness church coming out of something else and you think, I'm a Christian, they call themselves Christians and all this, and now I'm hearing all these false teachings saying you escaped from one and now you're delivered into something else. And then, and then, no, let's not even say Jehovah's Witness or Mormons. Let's say you come to a true church and now you're hearing the truth but you're not able to discern if it's true or not, and you're thinking about what you came from, and you go back to that. Peter says this, and so does the writer of Hebrews, and I'll go there with you. 
uh, in Hebrews 6, if you want to go there and meet me there, he's saying this, if you've received the true word of God, it becomes a very, very serious deal for you to walk away from it. Very serious deal. Peter says this, it'd be much better for you if you just never heard it. It'd be much better if you never heard it. Because what you're doing when you've heard it and you walk away from it, says you're crucifying the Son of God again to yourself. You're saying he needs to die again for me because he died for me and I came, but then I left. So now I don't want anything to do with it. And now if I come back again, you're asking him to die again. And, and the writer of Hebrews would say, you're trampling the Son of God underfoot and you're treating his blood as something common. Just say, all right, I'm back, all right, I'm back, forgive me, forgive me, type of thing. It says, no, it'd be better if you just never ever came to the faith. So we who have the truth, we can't stay on milk teaching, guys, because those are the ones that the writer of Hebrews worries is vulnerable to walking away. It says it's these teachings that kind of make you shudder and all of this. Here was my topic in school today. This is how serious I am about you got to get to me. To 16 and 17 year olds, I said this. Today, I want you to sit silently for the first 30 seconds. I want you to think about hell. Just think about hell. And you're going to tell me what you thought about after you're done thinking about it. And they're like, wow, why do we got to think about that? Pastor Shot, you're ruining our day, da, da, da. I said, whoever asked you to do that before? Nobody. Who would ever ask us to do that? And I said, and I read them some scripture about, um, where was I with this? I forget where I was. Oh, it was Psalm 139, where David wants to slay the wicked. And he's talking about all these crazy things. And he says, but lead me in the way everlasting. And I said, you know what, guys, listen. Believe it or not, when I was very young, the way that I think God developed me in faith was by first of all, convincing me of hell. At a very young age, hell was very real to me. It was, and I was very irrational about it, of course, because I was very young. Uh, I still remember to this day, I used to take the garden hose and I would sit on the ground in the yard and I would just stick the hose in the ground and let it just pile up with water and water because I thought maybe just perhaps this is messing with the fires of hell, okay? And then I thought, I lived about 100 yards from Lake Erie, and so we'd always walk to the lake to go swimming. And as I'd walk down the street towards the lake, I'd walk by cars parked in driveways, and I would think, what if the devil just throws one of these cars out at me now because of what I did with the water? I mean, I always had a clear conception that I had an enemy. Clear conception I had an enemy. And as irrational as some of those thoughts might have been, the fact that he was always real to me I think helped me become a person of solid faith though. And I think what helps people walk away from this faith is they have never encountered fear. That without God, it is a very fearful thing. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrifying thing to experience his wrath. And Peter says here, that it'd be better if you just never came to the faith than to take it and count it as common or worthless. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says in chapter six, starting in verse four. He says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened 
and have tasted the heavenly gift. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Notice these words aren't words of like ownership. You tasted and you partook. It's not you consumed and you lived it out. You just tasted, you partook. Um, and you've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. If they fall away, what's impossible? To renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. What puts the Son of God to open shame? That you say this, I used to be a Christian. Because what does that tell the world? Jesus can be walked away from, or Jesus isn't really real. And those who check out Jesus realize that he's not really real. That's why they walk away from him. You do tremendous damage to the hearts of other people when they see that Jesus did nothing for you, because that is not ever true in authentic faith. So it's a terrible, terrible witness to the world to walk away from this faith. It'd be, you're putting him to open shame. Now, verse seven explains this very well. It says, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated, receives blessings from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it's rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. He's saying the word of God is like the rain and the rain falls on all the ground. And it produces sometimes herbs that are very useful to people. So the word of God, but more fruit, more herbs is useful, but it also can grow thorns and thistles and briars, which are not useful and they're only good to be burned. But it's the same word of God. So it's saying you're either gonna be useful when you receive the word of God or you're fit to be burned. That's what the word of God says. You're either useful with the word of God or you're fit to be burned because you are the bad ground, the bad seed, Jesus will say in Matthew's gospel, okay? Now, as much as I feel you have to have meat and chew it and all that stuff, and it's not always easy pills to swallow because the writer of Hebrews felt it's good to say something a little bit happier after that. I'm glad to end with something a little bit happier on that verse eight or nine. It says, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. So let this help your dreams tonight now. We're confident of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name and that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's saying, listen, what's the difference between the people of verse four through six, or actually four through eight, and the people of verses nine through 12. The difference is, same thing Paul will say in Ephesians, the same thing James will say, is that a life of good works always accompanies the authentic salvation. It always does. And we're confident because we, Paul says, I see your good works, your labor of love, I see these things in you, so I'm confident that you are an inheritor of the promise. You're somebody who's actually gonna make it to the end. Um, because you show the fruit of authentic salvation. And uh, I'll never ever wanna stop telling you guys that I know how I feel in the middle of the week at night. I'm not a likely person to do anything at seven o'clock at night in the middle of the week, but you are, you're here. And so many of your faces are so familiar. You do this a lot. 
Uh, I think one of you is flying. <laughs> or on a train or something. Yes, that's impressive. So um, um, I'm confident of better things for you guys. I'm confident you being an inheritor of the promises because of um, uh, y your love for, for the word. And it's my great love. I love this word. I don't know who I'd be without it. I don't know who I'd be without it. And I don't want to know who I'd be without it. But, um, and the same with you folks here. So amen uh, to you guys and uh, let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for this time with my friends. I pray for rich blessing upon them, Lord, for taking in your word for this extended period of time. And uh, pray that you found us faithful to it, Lord. And, and, and Lord, uh, only allow those faithful things to go forward, Lord, uh, that honors you and that's true of you. We love you and we serve you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we have several questions coming in on this one topic, so I'm going to try and cover all the questions that have come in. Um, but basically, they understand when you were translating Elohim, uh, not primarily pointing to the Trinity, but they're having a hard time grasping that. They're, they're still struggling with that because that's what they've always known. Yeah, okay. You know what? I, I think I failed to say something that would have helped there, so I'm glad you guys brought that up. So um, if you go back to Psalm 82, if you go back to Psalm 82 and verse 6, um, it says, I said you are gods. Well, guess what that word gods is in Hebrew? Elohim. Okay? So here, God is saying, I called you Elohim. And yet you'll die like men. So I just I want to just point out that Elohim is used several times in the Old Testament where it doesn't possibly refer to the Trinity. Okay, he's not telling the Trinity you're going to die like men one day. Okay, so Elohim um, is often used in the Old Testament as alongside of the term sons of God. So he considers sons of God as Elohim. So when you get the sons of God went into the daughters of men, these are the Elohim, the, what, what you can refer to as the divine council, that there's this divine council that both Yahweh, is Yahweh, our God, is the supreme ruler of this divine council. So I don't want you to think God, our God, is sharing equality with any of these gods. He's not. He's clearly over them. He's clearly over them. And he clearly judges them. But here's the deal with you and I. Paul will say, don't you know that one day you will judge angels? That means you're going to participate in the divine council because what does he call us? Sons and daughters of God. The very term that's used for these Elohim, sons of God. He now says we are that. So it's not just you becoming angel-like in heaven and enjoying heaven as as people like to say, we become angels, where the Bible would say, no, you're actually above the angels. And you're actually going to be the judge of the bad Elohim, the bad divine council, the ones that have ruled over these nations. So what is God actually doing? That's why I say this stuff is very eye-opening. Because what God is actually doing is he's going to reclaim all the nations of the world to himself. How? Well, he tried it through Abraham and starting a nation of Israel 
and it didn't work. From Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi, it's a disaster. So he's going to do the thing that won't fail, and he's going to send his son, Jesus Christ. Now, what does Jesus Christ do? How many nations did I say were at Babel that started the world? 70, correct? 70. Now, how many does Jesus send out with the gospel when he's training up disciples? 70. He sends out 70. That's the same number because the idea is he's get, they're going to represent the gospel to all the nations that God's going to reclaim back to himself. And it's the gospel that's going to reclaim them. So it's like one per nation. They represent a nation that's going to come back to him. And Psalm 82.6 says that, that um, the sons of God, which were referred to in the New Testament, are going to be the ones that judge these bad Elohim that rule these nations incorrectly and wrongly. And what I find fascinating is this. The nations that actively worship these false gods even today, if not exclusively, certainly largely, are third world nations. They're nations that never get out of their poverty. They never get out of their own way. And they're mostly desert type of places because the desert is always the place of the demonic in the Bible. So they seem to be trapped because their lesser gods just don't rule them with any kind of righteousness. They rule them with unrighteousness and they're trapped and are never allowed to thrive and be blessed. Like when our nation was founded, it was founded upon the Bible and the biblical principles of the Bible. And there's tremendous blessing, you know? So no matter what you think of our country, I just want you to remember this. What's our Western border? Our Western border is the biggest body of water on the planet. What's our Eastern border? The second biggest body of water on the planet. That is about as safe as you could be sandwiched in between anything on this earth is between the, those two oceans. And then who's our border to the North? Friends. And it's kind of cool that they have a much weaker army too. Who's our friends to the South? more another friendly nation with a weaker army it doesn't get much safer than us then you consider this some nations thrive because they have lots of oil do we yes some nations thrive because they have lots of gold do we yes some nations thrive because they have tons of beauty and tourism do we yes some nations thrive because they have great farmland do we yes Everything that other nations have one or two of to make them get by, we have them all. This nation has every single thing. You want to go snow skiing? Go to the United States of America. You want to lay it on the beach? Go to the United States of America. We have every climate. We have the mountains. We have the, the flatlands. We have oil and gold and farms and industry like no one no other else has industry. There's nothing we don't have. There's nothing we don't have. Blessing. We are founded upon Christian bless principles and God blessed and he blessed and he blessed and he blessed. And I'll say this without being specific, but if you don't like whoever becomes our president, know this. Maybe we're ripe for judgment. It's very consistent with God to raise up bad leaders for a place that needs to be judged and to let the bad leader be the judgment on the land. And listen, if we're killing our babies and doing other God ungodly things, I say bring the judgment on. I want the bad leader. Because I want this nation to repent. I don't want to keep going in this direction. I'd rather go through the chastening of Hebrews 12. 
says every child that's chastened by his father, it's because the father loves them. If you're not chastened by your father, your father don't love you. Okay, so how much more God and his chastening loves us? Okay, so maybe that's just our time. Maybe it's our time. So what should we do through all that? Here's what I'm doing, I promise you, here's what I'm doing. I'm working on my trust for God. I'm just saying, I don't get it. They all seem corrupt to me. They all seem up to something. None of them seem like anybody I'd ever want my son to become one day. So if that's who they are, then we're just gonna focus in on trusting God. Let me tell you something. My soul is at ease with this whole thing. My soul's at ease, okay? All right. I know whatever the question was, I went way off the topic, so I apologize, but anyway. Did that- did We are getting some follow-up questions um, on your response here. Uh, some of the questions are, uh, are these gods that Elohim fallen angels? And are they rulers, principalities, and powers of the dark world? Uh, if you can elaborate a little bit more there, please. I think that's exactly right. I think uh, they're fallen angels. I think they're the principalities and powers of darkness and higher places that Paul warns us against. Uh, it should be no surprise to anybody listening to me that there's dark forces that rule out there because why does Paul tell us that? Why does he say you're not battling flesh and blood, you're battling principalities? That's an authoritative position, powers of darkness and higher places. These are, these are evil rulers, spiritual beings that are evil and are ruling unrighteously. In Psalm 82.6, God says, I'm gonna judge them for it. And remarkably, we see that we're being trained and, 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 and raised up to participate in this divine council that Adam and Eve were a part of. Adam and Eve are part of this divine council that fell. But because they were the image bearers of God, God redeemed them. That's our unique position as we receive this redemption that these angels didn't, okay? So, I think that number 70 is huge, the 70 nations of Babel, Jesus sends out the 70. Um, I think understanding the Mount of Transfiguration as Mount Hermon, where uh, they believe to be the, the, the gateway to Hades for, for the demonic world. And so Jesus, listen, what does that mean? Jesus shows up on that mountain, transforms himself into his eternal glory. He's saying, I stand upon the mountain of the devil and here's who I am, I'm the God of glory unaffected by where I stand. That would have meant a lot to Peter, John, and James on that mountain with their understanding. If you ever wanna study the mountains of the Bible, they have massive significance, these mountains, massive. Gardens and mountains in the Bible all are telling you a thousand things that we never catch. Gardens and mountains of the Bible are huge, hugely important for our understanding. Multiple people have sent in questions on this topic, so I'm just going to kind of read a few of the statements and let you respond to them, but they're all around the false teachers that are talked about in 2 Peter. Um, people are asking questions like with recently with the Pope making statements about marriage and prosperity teaching and so on and so forth. Um, how do we use discernment against all of these false prophets, and do they know that they're even false prophets? Um, I certainly think the prosperity preachers have to know. I don't know how they could not know. Um, as far as the Pope goes, um, I think, okay, I'm just going to tell you the truth. I think 
Catholicism has gotten so confused over the centuries that he may not know. I think Catholicism slowly drifts from the truth century after century in indiscernible ways so that if you do indiscernibly drift long enough, you don't realize how far away you are. And therefore, it could seem like the most loving thing in the world to say, whoever should get married, you know? And it just seems like an act of love and so forth. And um, so I, I don't feel comfortable speaking for the Pope at all. I will say, I've never spent time in the Bible where I would ever have believed a prosperity preacher in my life. I don't know how they, they appeal to your covetousness, don't they? They appeal to your covetousness, just like Peter's saying here, that false teachers will do. And uh, how do you prepare people for picking up their cross every day if you're promising them prosperity every day? Um, it's just, yeah. First uh, and Second Peter, there's so much suffering involved. I don't know how how you teach those books as a prosperity teacher. There's no prosperity in these books, so I don't know how they do it. And I got to know that they know because there's got to be some level of discomfort um, calling people to bring in food for the homeless when you're showing up on jets, you know, and things like that. So. Yeah, so I think that's enough to say about that. This is a question that is, is speaking about other churches that uh, are not uh, as theologically sound as Calvary might be. When they write worship music, um, how should we respond? Should we play their music and support those types of ministries and potential false teachings, or should we walk away from that music? All right, so... Um, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but I think worship music is much simpler than, um, than we make it out to be. I, I do think this, I think, I think a lot of what is sung in church is not worship. I think it's a Christian concert, uh, is happening in our country a lot. And I think me personally, and you can feel free to disagree but me personally, anything more than words on the screen and a couple instruments leading you and singing them takes away from worship. If your focus is on a musician and not on the words that you're singing to God, then you're distracted from worship and a worship leader shouldn't lead you in that distraction. Um, maybe it's just me. I get distracted when I see a person playing an instrument on the screen instead of seeing the words. I need the words. I need, I need the lyrics to sing and I need to focus in on what I'm saying to God. We have to realize we're singing this stuff to God. You need to see yourself in the throne room singing to him. That's worship. And anything that distracts that is, is, is an issue and should, should go away. Um, now, some people will say, I'll get distracted if we do it your way because it's too boring or whatever. So maybe you need a little bit more type of thing, but whatever it is that keeps your mind and heart on God, that joy of the Lord rises up within you through it. And it's not just because you like the beat, it's because you understand the connection that you're experiencing through that worship with, with God. 
So the lyrics need to be lyrics that you can find on the pages of the Bible. Those are the words that are actually ordained to change the human heart. So it shouldn't be just some other version of that. It should be the words of the Bible, not, not just singing books of the Bible, but the lyrics to a song should be incorporating scripture all the time. Um, and it should be songs to God. I find a lot of songs that are like pep talks to ourselves a lot. That's not worship. That's a pep talk to yourself. Worship is singing to God as if you're the only two in the room and you're communicating to him through song. That's worship, in my opinion. So, um, and I think we do our souls well, the more authentic we engage in worship. And I honestly think the best worship you could probably ever do is on your own sometimes. With the music that you like the best, um, in your car, eyes closed, singing to God. No, in your car, eyes open, singing to God. Or in your home, eyes closed, singing to God. Um, but there needs to be a worship experience happening there. Like I can't raise my hands and worship. The second my hands are in the air, my whole mind goes, your hands are in the air. And I lose my whole focus on worship. I literally put my hands in my pocket because it just gets my mind off of me as best as possible. But that helps me to worship. And I'm sure that's not everybody, but, that's, but we gotta find the things that help us focus in on what we're singing and doing there. This person is referring to a passage and it says, when Jesus talks about the gates of hell not prevailing, do you think he was at, at Mount Hermon? The reason the person asked the question is because they know this is the place where a lot of false gods were sacrificed to. Yeah, I don't think it was on Mount Hermon, but but uh, they're in uh, Caesar Philippi, which is at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's right there at at that location. It's very very close. So yes, I think I think that place was chosen because of the vicinity of Mount Hermon, and um, and 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 therefore when Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail. It's kind of standing in enemy territory saying, you ain't got to worry about a thing. Because remember, gates are not offensive weapons, right? You don't go to war wielding a gate, do you? Okay, they're defensive weapons and they sanction off your territory. This is my territory, I put a gate around it. So it's saying Satan has gated off areas of hell for himself and Mount Hermon would be known for that. And so, um, I, th I think that I think Jesus is using all those references there and saying the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church, which is usually a Halloween teaching for me, by the way. So here's something else you might not like very much. But um, I think, you know, Halloween is German for Holy Eve. It's, it's literally named after a holy night we're supposed to be having on Halloween. And it's it was the night before All Saints Day. November 1st is All Saints Day. We celebrate the saints of the church or the football team in New Orleans or whoever. All right. Um, so, <laughs> all right, my wife is shaking her head. I can't look over there right now. All right, so, um, so the world is taking it over for darkness and death, correct? But the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The only way hell will win on Halloween is if the church doesn't show up and do something about it. And if the church shows up, it can't lose. So uh, my wife will buy the biggest candies and put Capri Suns with them, wrap them up in ribbon, and then she'll stick church literature like 
children's ministry stuff in the ribbon. So you want all that big old candy? Guess what? You're going to be reading about what our church is up to. Okay? So you think Satan likes that? But guess what? Nothing he can do about it. Right? The gates of hell can't win against you. Greater is he who is you than he who's in the world. That's why it's embarrassing to find a scared Christian. Because I don't think they believe that they have the greater power in them. Okay? So the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. The church needs to just show up. We got to keep showing up and all these things. Okay. I keep thinking I go somewhere that you haven't asked me. Am I answering these questions or no? Yes, very much so. All right, good. Uh, we do have a few messages coming in on the previous. I think it was the previous question. Uh, let's end on this, but uh, it goes back to the false teachers and music. Uh, what? How do we respond as Christians to? Uh, music comes from places like Hillsong and Bethel, uh, again, where they're not uh, doctrinally sound the way that we are, um, at least not aligned with us. Uh, does that count as false teaching, and how should we respond to that type of music? Well, because I don't know what they teach. I'm not in tune with them. All I know is this. If they put out a song that the words are biblically based and scripturally accurate, worship with it. Okay, worship with it. Paul will say... People are saying, hey, these, these preachers are doing this preaching for wrong reasons. And Paul will say, you know what? That's between them and God, but at least Christ is preached. So if they're putting out anything that's biblically accurate or, or, or whatnot, then you can use that. You can use that for your own worship as long as it doesn't have one of the false teachings in it. You know, as long as God is worshiped through whatever, that's fine. Um, but you just got to make sure you don't like it so much that you start listening to the false teachings just because you like the song so much. Like that was the deal with Rob Bell. I used to love Rob Bell's videos way back in the day, and then he became a false teacher. And we had, in, in our bookstore, we had all his videos and books everywhere, and we had to pull them because even though the books that he wrote at the time and the videos were fine, he became a false teacher teaching that everybody gets out of hell sooner or later and love wins in the end even for people in hell and all this stuff well the good videos that you can rent that were accurate would make people want to listen to his sermons of things which were not accurate so in that case we just took everything out of the bookstore to not lead people towards somebody who became a false teacher type of thing so you just got to make sure it's not leading you to want to do more with the group that's not known for sound doctrine but if they have an individual song that you like or something like that then as paul said as long as christ is preached that's great. Thank you, Pastor Bill. That is all the time for questions that we have. We do have quite a few questions still coming in about Elohim. So to all of you guys asking those questions, uh, Bill and I uh, will discuss that here after class today and find out the best way to answer the questions. Um, but uh, Pastor Bill, are there any closing thoughts that you have for this evening? Um, no, just uh, really good to see you guys every week and uh, have a great two weeks and uh, we'll see you guys then. God bless you. <laughs>